selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, we are joined by the writer for the New York Times and co-host of Slate's Gab Fest and a Yale fellow, Yale Law School fellow, Emily Bazelon, and director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Wessel. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to this week's sponsors, ExpressVPN and Blinkist, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, the Democrats' domestic initiative on Capitol Hill is teetering. And if it goes down, it's going to be catastrophic for them, probably assuring a Republican tsunami next year. But what's really grating is it's some Democrats who are selfishly sandbagging their own party. The proposal to allow Medicare, for instance, to negotiate prescription drug prices. Now, that's good for seniors. It's really popular with the public. Was sidetracked by three Democrats, Kathleen Rice of New York, Scott Peters of California, and Kurt Schroeder of Oregon. I'm sure all three will do very well in raking in campaign contributions from drug companies, but if they persist, we'll see how they enjoy their minority status uh, in two years. Drug companies do important research. They produce vital drugs. James, you and I know that, some of which I take, but they are enormously profitable, and it's nonsense that allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for prescription drugs somehow will stifle this development. And just quickly, on the tax front, North Dakota Senator Heidi Heidkamp has sold out and is lobbying against taxing capital gains at death with a phony argument it affects family farms. And predictably, Max Baucus, a former senator from Montana, is working to protect rich interests like the estate uh, tax. You know, James, I think you're on to this early. We need to know especially which Democrats are lobbying 
with lobbying firms and law firms to keep like a carried interest loophole and these others that enable wealthy people to escape or reduce their taxes. Who are they? Yeah, and two of the most popular, popular, I mean, politically advantageous proposals you have is negotiating lowering prescription drug prices and raising taxes on incomes more than $500,000. And there are a lot of Democrats in good standing, all right, who make gazillions of dollars. And, and of course, the, the pharmaceuticals and the hedge fund guys and all of these people— you know, it, it, it's like you can buy any Democratic lobbyist in Washington that you want. And I'm not and I'm not against lobbyists. Look, the airlines have to have a lobbyist or the trucking industry or the beer wholesalers or the auto dealers. I mean, I understand all of that. And I understand that that big pharma has legitimate interests or, or, or is affected by legislation. But the idea that the federal government cannot negotiate drug prices for Medicare or Medicaid, it's just, it makes utterly no sense. And somebody said, and they always say, well, we need that money for research and development. That's why it costs more money here than it does in Canada. Well, you know what? How much you spend on research and development? Let the federal government fund it. We'll take care. And how much you spend on advertising? I mean, is blood pressure medication a part of the market system or is it is it a national good? It is insulin. I mean, we've got to, at some point, this makes me, people think I'm some kind of moderate Democrat. I'm really not. I'm, I'm, I'm a liberal Democrat. And it, it just opens up to see why the Bernie Sanders of the world, you know, you, you don't agree with them on everything, but they got a point that they're not people without a point. Yeah, they do. And, you know, the substantive argument that the special interests make in some of these cases is just absolutely false. Bob Rubin, who hardly could be called a Bernie Sanders Democrat or a Bernie Sanders socialist, says that the tax loopholes that enable private equity executives to pay a lower tax rate on their pay for performance is indefensible. And likewise, the so-called stepped-up basis that uh, enables rich heirs to avoid any taxation on capital gains at death is equally indefensible and doesn't affect the economy one iota. You know, James, you're right. No one's questioning the right to lobby. I mean, everybody has that right, and they can take all the money that their clients will pay them. But but I want to point a finger at the media. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CNN and others are not doing their job here. If there are former top aides to the Obama White House, congressional Democratic leaders in particular, who are working to undermine the hand that fed them, that got them where they are now, let's just bring it out in the open. Sunlight's a disinfectant, maybe even a disincentive. Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the argument is always the same. If, if you tax incomes over a half million dollars, Charlie Dent, who's a banty Trump guy, he's a Pennsylvania Republican, you know, in that world he's considered to be, you know, one. Boy, that's a mistake to do that because if you do, it's small business is just going to pass on the cost. If you have a wage of over $3 an hour, well, you don't do that because that's just going to pass on the cost. Well, I'm sick of that argument, all right? Just utterly sick of it. We got gut wrenching inequality in this country. And it, it, it the, the way, the, the, one of the principal ways that you address inequality, honestly, is through the tax code. And it requires, frankly, making the rich pay more in taxes to spread benefits out among the, the you know, lower middle class working force. 
I mean, that's just as plain and simple as it can be. And they'll come up with the same argument every time. It's like, well, what about the family farms in Iowa? The New York Times did a thing. There wasn't a single family farm in Iowa. Can't find one. Was, can't find right. one. That's the fact. Right. And they make the same fucking argument every time. And, and, this is, and they know the same Democratic lobbyists. They know the same people to go to. And the press is talking about pronouns. That's what that, that's what just drives me goddamn crazy. Right. All right. It just, well, it's just so ludicrous that changing and celebrating changes in language while people are just getting and it's not going to make your life or my life or Bob Rubin's life or or, or, or David Rubenstein's life or, or George Clooney's life. All right. Or. or, or you know, anybody else, it's not going to make a tenured professor in linguistics at Amherst life one one whit difference. It's just bullshit. Yeah, it is. And let's name names. Who are the Absolutely. people lobbying for these causes? Uh, I mean, pharma has not, you know, they've got all kinds of paid lobbyists, and I just want to know who they are. Um, you know, let's name them, and I, I think uh, let's call on the media to do a much better job of letting people know who's behind this. Hey, James, as you know, I've been in Washington for a long time. And the best economics correspondent, and there have been many good ones, is David Wessel. We work together at the Wall Street Journal, where he's still a contributor. He's now director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. And his newest book, Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age, will be out next week. Everybody ought to go get it. Hey, David, welcome. The Thank debt, you. Good to be with you. The debt ceiling is about to expire with Republicans unwilling to help and it's tied to the so-called continuing resolution to fund the government. Explain all this in English to us and how big a deal is it? Uh, well, A, it's a very big deal. Um, as you know, the law says that the executive branch can only spend money that's been appropriated by Congress. The fiscal year ends on September 30th, so a lot of the appropriations run out. And we've unfortunately been through this before uh, in, an, in previous times when you had a shutdown. It meant that some workers were furloughed and didn't get paid, but there seemed to be a lot of exemptions to get emergency workers. Um, it's upsetting, but unfortunately, we've had some practice on it. So it, it probably would be uh, unfortunate, but not a big problem unless it lasted for a long time. The debt ceiling is an entirely different matter. Um, the debt ceiling has an interesting history. It dates to World War One. Before World War One, Congress had to approve every time the Treasury sold bonds. That was getting a little messy. So they said, okay, you can sell bonds whatever you want, but up to a certain limit. <clears throat> and that limit has been hit. And now the Treasury is doing a lot of fancy maneuvering to, in order to continue to pay the, the bills. Um, but sometime in October or early November the Treasury won't have enough room to continue to pay bills. That is, they'll only be able to pay those bills for which they have money coming in on that particular day. And given that we're running huge deficits, there won't be enough money. Um, in the past, in the distant past, Congress would always just increase the debt limit as a matter of course, with some belly aching. In the recent past, this has become a lever that people use to get concessions uh, that they wanted. And the thing that makes this one so unusual is that in the past, both parties kind of agreed we should cut the deficit. 
and the debt ceiling became a moment for some kind of negotiation about how much to cut the deficit or how to do it. But in this time is different for a couple of reasons. One is the Democrats have no intention of cutting the deficits. They want to increase it. So there's not much maneuvering room. And secondly, the and you know better than I, Al, the partisan uh, polarization and hypocrisy has reached new levels. And so that makes it very difficult. And there are a lot of people in the markets who are worried that this time they might not raise the debt ceiling in time, which means that they might not be able to pay interest on the federal debt, which is not a good thing when you owe as much money as the U.S. government does. David, you mentioned the recent past. Under the Trump, and during the Trump years, the debt ceiling was either suspended or raised three times, always with a, a whole bunch of Democrats. Debt rose, by the way, $7.7 trillion under Trump. And, and this is really not tied to current spending. Uh, so what's the Republican rationale for being so seemingly irresponsible? Well, you're absolutely right that this is agreeing to pay the bills that we've already spent the money on. It's like the government saying, oh, we ran up the credit card balance, the bill came, and we don't feel like paying it. So it has nothing to do with spending going forward. I don't think the Republicans have much rationale other than we don't like the course the Democrats are on, and we're going like, to make life miserable for them. And I guess they must think that there will be some political advantage to forcing the Democrats to do this without any Republicans voting for it. Although, frankly, I can't imagine very many Americans could care less about the debt ceiling. So I and and to sort of decry the hypocrisy of Mitch McDonald, Mitch McConnell is kind of well. So what else is new? Um, you know, he That's leaned sure. on the Democrat. Yeah. So like, it's just a sign of how bad things have become and inability of the parties to come together on even on things that used to be no-brainers. And as you know, the Democrats have a pretty slim majority, so it makes it really uncomfortable for them. Let me go back to the continuing resolution to fund the government. If they don't do it by September the 30th, and there's a so-called government shutdown, Social Security checks not get paid? Do the troops get paid? Are there air traffic controllers? Uh, does Congress get paid? Uh, I don't think Congress gets paid, but all of the above, don't worry about it. Um, the Social Security, Medicare, all those things are not part of the appropriations process. And the, the rulings of the budget office in Republican and Democratic administrations have allowed the government to designate people as emergency. And so they keep working. So the FEMA people would keep working and CDC and stuff like that. There would be people who were who were furloughed and didn't get paid. And in the past, Congress has always paid them after the fact, and that would probably happen this time. So uh, unfortunately, this, we have a system for dealing with government shutdowns. Uh, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, and you might not might have trouble getting your passport renewed, but it's not devastating. A failure to raise the debt ceiling would really rattle the markets, and I think it, it could have lasting effects on people's confidence in our ability to govern each, ourselves. James. So, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but please to come up to me and say, you know, James, I'm a constitutional conservative. And I said, what the fuck does that make me, any constitutional liberal? I mean, our constitution doesn't belong to one particular part. But I think there's a provision in the constitution about the public debt of the United States. And I think these guys are going to run into, you know, who knows what these courts will do, but there's a case to make that this is against the constitution. Do you agree with that? Could be. I mean, there is some some line. I don't remember exactly how it yeah. goes. But right. as you point out, so, you know, 
that's if we hit the hit the wall, it's not going to be solved by the courts. It's going to be a problem before then. I think what's likely to happen is either a they'll flinch, they'll find a way to get it done, and I suspect the Democrats have a plan B here. It'll be ugly, or they will hit the wall. The government will not be able to pay some bills. And the market reaction will be so adverse, adverse, it'll be like when the TARP bill went down and then all these guys will be running to be responsible. Um, but it seems like uh, a risk not worth taking. So uh, I, I'm reading this stuff. I started, read it maybe a couple of weeks ago. I think George Soros, I think, had a piece in Wall Street Journal of all places, you know, bringing the alarm about China. And I'm like, I don't know, this guy can say what you want about him. He's not stupid. <laughs> All right. And then everything that I've seen in the last two weeks, you know, this Evergrande and the Chinese real estate market, how, how worried should I be about this? Because it's given me a, a, a little bit of a queasy pit in my stomach. So do you have a lot of money in Chinese real estate, Jim? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. But I, I saw, I saw, I, Check I, 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 I got some, you know, mutual funds, you know, who knows? I don't Look, think it's very I big think... in Chinese real estate, but get, yeah, what we saw in our, what we saw in 2008, I didn't have any money in, in U.S. real estate, but Jesus. Right. Took, yeah, took right. I, no, I think it's, it's really ironic that, uh, in 2008, the American real estate industry brought down the world economy and the Chinese chortled and said, you guys think capitalism is so good. Look what you did. Our system is better. And we may find ourselves in 2021 when, when it's the Chinese real estate industry that's shaking the markets. I think, look, I think that I think it's a big problem because China is now a big economy. I've thought for some time that the Chinese financial system was fragile and brittle and over leveraged. And, but you never, every time somebody told you, oh, they're going to have a calamity in China, it never arrives. So people begin to wonder, well, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. Um, I think that the, the, the one thing is true is that the Chinese do have a lot of resources. And if you have the kind of government they do, you don't need to convince Congress to raise the debt limit or bail out the banks. So they'll do what it takes. But it is a sign that the, of the fragility of their financial system. And it comes at a time, the Journal had a terrific story the other day by Ling Ling Wei, where the Chinese leadership is really going back to Mao Zedong times. This notion that we're going to let markets do their thing is gone. And so it's going to put a lot of pressure on the government to protect people who are hurt by when if the real estate industry collapses. And there are a lot of people who have their savings in real estate in China. So you've been covering this for a long time. Right? And, and it was so quaint because we in Clinton world we used to brag in 1997 we actually balanced the budget and you know and that was our, our god I remember when we started uh, in 1993 it, you got to do something you got to be careful the bond market if they don't they see this or interest rates will go up everybody was traumatized by in the Carter administration 1979 and the concern, I mean, you know, I'm sure, and forget what the Republicans say and the Democrats say when in power, but there seems to be a consensus among economics and, and high-end journalists like yourself that we shouldn't worry that much about the deficits. We certainly don't worry about it anything close to the way we did in the 90s. How did this evolve? How did this become sort of part of the Washington consensus and orthodoxy that deficits were bad? And now it's kind of part of Washington consensus and orthodoxy that, well, we shouldn't worry about it too much. I think two things happen. One is 
we ran up the debt during the 2008 crisis and we ran it up again during the COVID crisis and nothing bad happened. So you may recall that com- that Simpson Bowles uh, commission oh. on the debt and and you know they they would talk about if we don't do this now we're going to have a calamity. And so they have a cry wolf problem. The calamity never arrived. So one thing that happened is we ran a grand experiment and it turns out that the US government can borrow a hell of a lot more money than we used to think was possible. But the other thing that's gone on, and this is what's really affected the thinking of economists at people like Brookings and Olivier Blanchard, who's at the Peterson Institute, formerly the IMF and MIT, is that um, for some reason, interest rates around the world have been very low and have trended down. And it's not just because of what the Fed is doing. And in a world in which interest rates are very low, you can borrow more money without getting into trouble. And... There are lots of explanations or attempted explanations about why interest rates are low, but um, I think that has made it safer to borrow lots of money the same way when interest rates are low, you can afford to take a bigger mortgage because your monthly payments aren't going to go up. And that's really the big change. Um, And that that was not obvious when you were in, in Washington. Uh, right, the Clinton years. Because I mean, uh, that was just no one questioned that really. Right. I right. mean, it was just it was just part of what you did, and it was you know considered Absolutely. to be like a, a great achievement. And it, it just it, it. I'm gonna turn it back over to Al. But I, you know, I'm just watching this. You know, guy comes to Washington from you know Louisiana, just a political guy, spend twenty years up here and then go back home. Sometimes, I, and maybe it's just a a strain of anti-elitism in me. I, I, I don't know that. I don't think I'm anti-elite, but but whatever. But man, they get a lot of things wrong. Well, yeah, but I think there. One thing is we might have gotten things wrong, and we probably did get things a little wrong then. But also, the environment changed. The world is different. Interest rates were higher then, so it was more expensive to have a lot of debt. And so, what was true in 1991 isn't necessarily true in 2021. And that doesn't mean that the wrong decisions were made in 1991 or 1993. Oh, thank you. That's very good. You should teach. Very clarifying. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Every time I read him, he teaches. David, um, I want to talk about the economy for a minute. The Delta variant has thrown a a bit of a wrench uh, into the economy, but, but aren't the basics still really strong and the outlook still for a a robust recovery barring the COVID getting worse? Yes, yes. I mean, it's really been interesting. I I didn't expect the economy to recover so quickly after the COVID thing hit. I think it is, uh, goes a little bit to the point that Jim was making that, you know, look, uh, we, we spent, a, the government stepped in and they stepped in big time and it made a big difference. Uh, you know, that we, could, they, we could have had a much worse recession had they not done this. Um, the labor market seems pretty strong, even though there are fewer jobs than we had before the pandemic. There seem to be an awful lot of job openings. And higher um, wages. Higher wages. We've had higher wages. We have more inflation, and that's an issue. It, um, the Fed tells us it's temporary, and we'll see. I think they're probably right, but you can't be sure. Um I think a lot. So, yes, I think things have really and there probably have been some shakeups in the economy that are temporarily disrupting things that will wane. 
And so, yeah, I think the outlook is pretty good. Um, you know, I, there's a chance that that a year from now we'll be in a really nice economy and we can look back on this, provided the people get vaccinated and we don't have epsilon and gamma and all or whatever the rest of the Greek letters are, and we, we can get out of this. So, yes, I agree with you. And, and you know, it, it's almost a cliche, but the markets were volatile this week. I mean, I know the markets periodically are always volatile. Are they telling us anything or should we just say that's the markets? I think basically we should say that's just the markets. I mean, it was really hard to explain for me to understand how no matter how bad the news, the market went up. And so, you know, it's sooner or later they're going to come down. I think there are two things that the market seems to have been worried about, if you can believe what people say. One was, you know, like if China falters, China is a big piece of the world economy now and it would affect us all. Uh, and so if that the Evergrande and the real estate thing made people worry that maybe the Chinese had a problem they can't handle. So that would that's worth worrying about. And the second thing is the concern that maybe the Fed would um, stop being so patient and suddenly raise interest rates. But I think the market seems to have cooled off a little bit there. So I don't I'm not that worried about it. Well, speaking of your favorite subject, you wrote a book about the Federal Reserve and you covered it uh, with incredible distinction for so many years. Uh, will Jerome Powell be reappointed as chairman of the Fed? I think it's highly likely he will be. Um, he's delivered the monetary policy that any president would like. Uh, he's had good relations with Congress. And there are people, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Joe Biden among them, who I think are institutionalists who think it would be a good idea if the Fed chair was not some, a position that changed every time there was a change of party. The problem, the reason, if he doesn't get reappointed, it'll be because, A, some people think it's ridiculous for a Democratic president to appoint a white male Republican when there's a perfectly well-qualified woman Democrat, Lael Brainerd, available. And secondly, there are people on the left in Congress who are suspicious of Jay Powell for not being tough enough on the banks. Um, And they may have some, they may have a point there, but... I, I think that the, the first things will prevail. And I think there's also a risk to the Biden administration. You change horses at the Fed, there's always going to be a little bit of shakedown crews, and that means that interest rates might be a little higher than otherwise, and that's not what you want. And you got enough stuff interest. that rattles people. You don't need something exactly. new to rattle yeah. people. Yeah, James? So every Wednesday I, I get the Financial Times because I like to read Martin Wolf and, and other people. And today... He had a call. I have to read it three more times before I can. It's not that smart to grasp it on the, the first read. But basically, Martin says, and the reason I like him is because he's just the, his utility with the English language is, is he never wastes a word or a sentence, you know. But but his point is, it's time to taper, all right. And I understand that. Do, do, do you agree? It's time to taper, or we shouldn't taper right now. And um, explain to our to our right. listeners, so what, what taper means. Basically, um, when the interest, short-term interest rates hit zero, the Fed had learned from the past that that doesn't mean there's nothing more you can do for the economy. So they started buying lots of bonds. And those uh, buying lots of bonds pushes down long-term interest rates, the ones that we pay on mortgages and businesses pay to borrow. And as the economy has gotten better, the Fed has continued to buy $120 billion a month worth of bonds. But um, even as we're speaking today, uh, the the Fed is announcing that it could start to taper those purchases in early November. 
And it seems to me that given that the economy has done pretty well, barring some Delta disaster or some stupidity on Congress, and given that inflation has risen well above the Fed's 2% target, taking the foot off the accelerator a little, which is what tapering is, slowing the pace of bond purchases, makes sense. Yeah, well, I, I'm having dinner with Ed Luce tonight, so maybe he can, you, but you helped me a lot. I think, you know, again, I, I, I'm very impressed with your ability to explain these things to people oh, like me and our listeners. It's, it's really impressive, David. Go ahead, Al. You've been doing that uh, for me for, for years, uh, which has <laughs> always been a challenge, but David Wessel has always uh, managed to rise to it. David, I thank you, too, and I want to tell all of our listeners out there, starting, starting I think, uh, next week, you can get his newest book, Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age. I hope you'll go to your closest bookstore. If not, go to Amazon. But I, get it, David Wessel. I, only the rich can play. It's going to. It's, I it's haven't. Worth a I read. haven't read it yet. I'm going to, and my expectations are sky high, and they will be met. In everybody should read this book because this guy knows what's going on, and he can explain it to you in the English language. Which that, oh, thank you, know, you so much. I mean that. I, I can't wait for your book, and. Boy, I'm going to hump that thing like a, like a young dog on an old piece of furniture. <laughs> okay, David, if we sell some, you buy breakfast or lunch next time. It's a deal. All it's right. a deal. All right, thanks. Hey, thank Bye. you very much. With the pandemic still ongoing, few things are more important to our lives than the Internet. But it doesn't matter which Internet service provider you have, ISPs in the United States can legally sell your information to ad companies. And even using incognito mode, your data and searches are getting out there. It doesn't matter how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when we're at home, you don't want to go online without using ExpressVPN. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through secure service so your ISP can't see the sites you visit and keeps your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even smart TVs, so there's no excuse for you not to be using it, right, James? You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm like a, a lot of people, and I, I think this kind of, not all big brother is the government, by the way. I, and I, you know, and they say like, accept cookies, and I don't know, but you know, I know they're, they're spying on you, and I'm, I, I don't care, but like some people, I do stuff on my computer that I, I would not like for the, the entire world to know what I do, right? And I, I, I think if, if there's a place to buy this stock, I want to do it. And you think of just not here, if you think of of, of China or, or, or Saudi Arabia or a thousand other places in, in, in the world, I, I think these guys are just on to something that's, that's really a utilitarian idea here. I mean, you know, there's nothing more powerful than an idea as time has come. This is the idea whose time has come. Yeah, I think you're right. Most of the time, you don't even realize. I don't know. You have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, James, <sighs> and then you're protected. God. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET. 
Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash warroom and you get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash warroom. Go to expressvpn.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes to learn more. Yeah, you know, Brian, if you go on your computer and you do Best Hotels Florence, next thing you know, you've got five hotels trying to sell you something. I just was looking to see, you know. <laughs> Boom. Hey, James, Emily Bazelon is a distinguished journalist, a best-selling author, a podcast icon, and a fellow at Yale Law School and the granddaughter of David Bazelon, one of the great appellate court judges in America. She's written with great expertise on many subjects, including abortion. Emily, you have followed this issue for a long time. It's, uh, I want to ask you first, I guess it's more of a political than a legal issue. Public opinion about abortion has changed very little over the decades. The majority are pro-choice with caveats, certainly against overturning Roe v. Wade. Yet all the momentum, all the action in recent years has been with the anti-abortion forces. Why? Well, because the Supreme Court um, established a constitutional national right to abortion with Roe versus Wade in the early 1970s, it's abortion opponents who've really been on the offense, right? Um, Because from the point of view of people who want access to abortion, that right has appeared to be firmly established. Now, you know, I would say that in the last um, five to ten years, it's been increasingly clear that in a lot of conservative states, people seeking abortions have actually very little access um, to the procedure. And now I'm sure we're going to talk about how much that is the case in Texas. But I think there has been a certain complacency on the port, on the part of people who support who support abortion rights that this is something we can rely on the courts to protect, whereas people who oppose abortion have really felt like they have to fight for for what they want to have happen, which is to return control of abortion access fully to the states. You you mentioned that, that incredibly harsh Texas law, uh, really no abortions after six weeks, and some women don't even know they're pregnant. Um, the court has let it stand now. It hasn't you know rendered a verdict on it yet. Uh, is it likely to stand until it reaches the high court uh, next year? I noticed there's a, you know, challenges have already begun. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Uh, as you just referred, so um, an abortion provider, a doctor in Texas, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that he had done a procedure since the law went into effect for someone who was beyond six weeks of gestation. And so, you know, that op-ed Um, invited and I think, um, you know, received a couple of lawsuits. And those could be the lawsuits then that go through the Texas state courts and provide the vehicle for um, blocking the law because under Roe versus Wade and the Supreme Court precedent since then, it it is clearly unconstitutional. Now, whether the court, this very conservative court, will continue to um, uphold the same standard for unconstitutionality that we've had for the last almost 50 years, I think nobody knows the answer to. 
And it's also possible that for one reason or another, these lawsuits could be deemed to be flawed in some way that would prevent the plaintiffs and the cases from moving forward. Um, So we're really at a position of a lot of legal uncertainty at this point because the Supreme Court, as you said earlier, has allowed this law to go into effect. Well, Emily, suppose the Supreme Court strikes down the Texas law and then upholds the Mississippi law and but avoid saying Roe v. Wade is hereby overruled and says instead something like we decline Mississippi's invitation that we revisit and overturn Roe v. Wade. We're only modifying it slightly, but they uphold the almost as punitive Mississippi law. Is that going to be treated as some kind of a moderate victory or a split decision? I mean, I think people who follow this issue closely and support abortion rights fear that, yes, it will be played as a kind of middle ground when, in fact, it will be really a first step toward overturning Roe. So there's been a long time debate whether a really conservative Supreme Court would take the very dramatic, huge headline step of overturning Roe all in one case. Um, That would be a kind of earthquake in American law and politics. The fact that the Texas law has gone into effect means that the court has been willing to do that in, you know, one of the country's biggest states. So that's a really big deal all on its own. But I think there is some concern um, among pro-choice advocates that if the court upholds the Mississippi law but does it in a way that allows Roe to sort of remain on the books or at least to appear like it's still the law of the land, that that will kind of minimize the political impact of the court's decision. Well, that, that just strikes me as, as, as a even likely hypothetical. I mean, Roberts is, a, I think, a conservative institutionalist, and I think Brett Kavanaugh is a pow. He doesn't want to do anything that hurts the Republican Party. Um, so I, I, I think that's a worry for the pro-choice forces if, if it's played that way. I mean, it's certainly possible. Again, right now, what's happening in Texas really, in a sense, overwhelms what's happening in Mississippi. Um, Because in Texas right now, abortion is effectively illegal for almost everyone who's trying to get an abortion. And that is just a seismic change in American um, reality for women who are pregnant. Um, We've had abortion be difficult to access. We've had states with only one clinic. But to say that you have to leave the state... um, to get what is a safe and effective procedure that women have relied on as a constitutional right for five decades, that is just a very big deal. And so I guess, (laughs) you know, in terms of thinking about impact, I feel like that's where we should be focusing, at least right now. James. So, so Emily, people are are conflicted on abortion. You know, they ask questions, you know, most cases, some cases, all cases, no cases, and it it shows a remarkable consistency. What people are not conflicted about is Roe. And if, if I were part of the abortion rights community or the choice community or whatever the, the current name is, I would be ruthless in saying, just talk about Roe. Roe is over 70%. The court knows that. And if any democracy, and of course they're going to, what they're going to do is they're going to keep eroding it, but I think keep eroding it without saying that they're eroding it. But I, I think it's a messaging issue that the, the, we should say that in effect Roe no longer exists. And, you know, if, if a, a, clerk at the Dollar General in Bunkett, Louisiana, and that's just say right in the middle of the state, you know, has is unmarried, got two kids by two different fathers, 
and is pregnant because the store manager is, you know, demanding sex of her for a 50 cent an hour increase, where does she go now? What does she do? Her, her boyfriend's going to beat the, and this is a real world that people live in. This is not a high-end theoretical world. They have, you have women that live like this every day of their lives. And what is what? What would you if if she called you and weeping and said, you know, Professor Brazen, what do I do? What, what would you advise her? I mean, I think that right now, if you're in Louisiana, you still have access to. I think there are three clinics still open in Louisiana, and I hope you don't live hundreds of miles from one of those clinics. It is also true that um, there's more and more evidence, and it's really mounted during COVID because of the rise of telehealth, that it is safe and effective to have an abortion with pills, and you don't necessarily need to go to the doctor to have an in-person visit. However, there are 19 states, and I'm sure they include Louisiana, in which um, telemedicine abortions are banned. And there are some restrictions on the medications that are from the FDA right now. So that's a kind of complicated legal picture, even if the medical and scientific evidence for safeness and effectiveness is, um, is clear. You know, in, in um, response to what you're saying about polling, I, I think, I mean, you're right. I guess I would say two things. One is that I wish there was more room in the political debate for people to express ambivalence and the, the conflicting kind of middle ground positions that I think a lot of people feel about abortion, um, which is that they, you know, have some discomfort with it. On the other hand, they don't necessarily want the government preventing people who need abortions from getting them. And then the question is, how would you ever really have that kind of standard? But sometimes the political debate becomes so polarized that I think people feel like they're feelings have no place in the debate. They have to choose one side or the other, and that just doesn't match where they're actually coming from. The other question I guess I would ask you is, if if you see 70% support for Roe and then less support for abortion rights, is that because people don't totally understand that Roe does protect abortion rights? Is that because people have a comfort with the status quo and they can tell that overturning Roe is going to be a big change and that even if they don't know a ton about the issue, that worries them. I'm just, I'm always myself confused about what to make of those um, polling discrepancies. So the Mississippi law says abortion after 15 weeks is illegal. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Justice Blackman wrote, wrote Roe and I think he was the general counsel right. for the Mayo Clinic. And he consulted. And there were, uh, I, I, I think Roe distinguished between first, second, and third trimester abortions. So somebody says, well, 15 weeks is beyond the first trimester. What's the big deal here? So in 1992, the court decided this other case called Planned Parenthood versus Very Casey. familiar with and it. And really all of our legal standards come from that, not Roe anymore. Okay. Casey sort of affirms the core holding of Roe, but then changes the standards. And so we don't really have that trimester framework from Roe anymore. You're totally right that it's in Roe. But what Casey says instead is that state governments have some interest in protecting the fetus. And before viability, they can impose some restrictions as long as they don't pose a, quote, undue burden 
on the person seeking the abortion. And so every restriction, every law that's come before the court since then has been subject to the standard. Is it an undue burden? Now, if you have a ban like Mississippi's ban, that is clearly an undue burden on people who are past 16 weeks. And the court to uphold Mississippi's ban is going to have to toss undue burden and come up with some other standard. And that is going to be a big deal, kind of no matter what um, what standard they come up with, because in order to uphold the 16-week ban, it's going to be much more permissive for states restricting abortion than the current law of the land. I, I gather you do not expect the court to say, we hereby overturn Casey Roe and Casey v. Planned Parenthood. And there is no constitutional right to abortion. Do you do you do you expect? It's not the smart move to make, right? For the reasons that both of you have laid out, um, it would be this earthquake, um, and and Americans often are kind of allergic to those sorts of legal and political earthquakes. However, there are at least five very conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I'm not counting um, Roberts in this five. I think of him as like the sixth vote. And it, it may be that they actually are ready to do this in one fell swoop. I don't, I don't think, I don't feel confident. I mean, I totally agree with you that the smart move is to erode and whittle away and minimize the headlines. Right. And then like you wake up and nobody realizes access to abortion, but oh, um, it looks like Roe and Casey are still on the books. Um, but I'm not sure. And the reason I'm not sure more right now is because of what's happening in Texas, which really is a dramatic move that the court made through what's called its shadow docket. No regular arguments, no briefing, just a one paragraph unsigned opinion. So, so before I turn it back to Al, part of what you do in addition to this is you've written about bullying. All right. And I have two daughters. And I, I want you just to react to this. I think the most vicious specimen on earth is not like a saltwater crocodile or, or diamondback rattlesnake, you know, or al-Qaeda guy in a cave. I think a seventh grade girl is about the most vicious thing you can encounter. And I went through this with my children. I, 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 don't, I think girls are better at bullying than boys. But you've studied this, and I'll ask you to respond to it. So the research on bullying shows that girls bully other girls, but boys bully both other boys and girls. And so I think, you know, look, we have this trope of the mean girl that's out there and it's powerful for a reason. And maybe your daughters have experienced some of that and that's like a real thing. But I also think that boys do their share of bullying. It may be that we're more horrified by the kind of like, cattiness and um, social ostracism and plotting that girls do and that the kinds of bullying that boys do, which may be more physical, more right. physically aggressive, just like gets under our skin less. I just don't want to let the boys off the hook. I'm not letting them off the hook, but I didn't have any boys. I've got two sons, James. I'll talk to you later uh, about that. <laughs> Emily, you have written with such distinction about so many things. And, and you know a lot about the Supreme Court. Let me get your take on Amy Coney Barrett's, uh, I thought, extraordinary, uh, uh, I am, we are not a bunch of partisan hacks speech. And she gave it at the Mitch McConnell Center in Louisville. Mitch McConnell was the one that enabled her to get confirmed uh, a week before the election, never been done before. Did that reflect just extraordinary naivete or arrogance? I mean, it's just kind of 
crazy. It's almost like a self-parody that a Supreme Court justice would would make that statement so emphatically at such a hyper-political event. Um, you know, it's only to be equaled by the timing of Justice Breyer's new book. Justice Breyer is arguing that the Supreme Court is all about the rule of law and the justices don't make political decisions. And then it's this book is coming out right as this... Um, decision in Texas allowing the Texas abortion ban to stand without any of the normal procedures. It's very awkward for Justice Breyer to be defending the court as non-political in this particular moment. I think it's clear that each of the justices who are speaking out right now, they have a lot invested in the integrity of this institution and its reputation, right? They've staked their careers on it. It's their um, professional home. And I, I just have trouble... Um, uh, what do I want to say? I think it's important to take into account how much they're invested when we listen to these protestations. Are they so much embedded in the institution that they just are blind to the way it looks to those of us on the outside? Well, I think that's a really good point. I've, I've a big fan of Stephen Breyer's. I actually knew him when he worked for Senator Kennedy, but, uh, you know, you would just point out to him maybe Bush v. Gore or maybe Shelby County or maybe Citizens United, and it's awfully hard to say that those weren't political decisions. If he does step down later this year, and there are indications he may, any thoughts on his likely replacement? You know, uh, President Biden have talked about has talked about um, nominating an African-American woman to that position. There are some amazing black female judges and lawyers and thinkers out there who would be great picks. I mean, one of the reasons I think it's important for Supreme Court justices to get better at retiring in both parties is that they're replaceable. There are lots of really talented people out there. And I think sometimes we've seen them, I mean, this is really a pattern that stretches back, you know, way before um, Justice Ginsburg, who, you know, obviously died while she was still on the bench last year. There's this pattern, and I think it's really informed by hubris, of justices staying until a very advanced age. And if they're doing it because they think that they individually are necessary, I just think they're clearly mistaken. There are lots of people who would be good at this job. Um, President Biden will have his pick um, of you know black women, of other people who would be great at it. You've written about so much, Emily. Let me ask you one other thing. You've written about Guantanamo. Uh, can Biden achieve what... Obama couldn't and end this this terrible stain? I mean, he could, I suppose, but I don't think he will. I think that at this point, um, we literally don't know what to do with these people other than detain them with very minimal due process until they die. I, it's really grisly, but I just don't, I don't feel hopeful about the resolution of Guantanamo. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong, too. James? Be your a product of, of, you know, elite, Ivy League. Every law student knew who your grandfather was. He and Learned Hand were probably two most famous non-Supreme Court justices that I can remember. And we have accepted, without any question, this default position that Supreme Court justices need to have graduated from a top 10 law school, have had a career in a huge law firm as appellate court judges and everything else, and that's just has become the default position for the qualifications of the Supreme Court judge. I think that is terrible. I think we should have like the, the, the city attorney for Chicago be 
at, at, at the first rank of people that we're looking at. I think we should, not just people who sat there. I, know, I don't know Amy Coney Barrett, but I know how she grew up because I'm from New Orleans. I know that right-wing Catholic community. She went to Dominican. She goes to Notre Dame. She's always been around people that think like her. The same thing with Roberts. The same thing at every one of the Kagan. The same thing. She was the dean of the Harvard Law School. And don't you think we need to get a couple of shoe clerks in this poker game that have actually yes. like, experienced mean, a life outside of, 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 you know, whatever you want to call high-end law and, and know what the, the woman in Bunky is going through? Because I'll tell you, sure, you ain't going to have any idea. Brent Kavanaugh's daddy was a, a lobbyist for, for the cosmetics industry. Uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, whose mother was you know, right-wing EPA director. I, I just think, and, and no one argues this. If I say that, people go, oh, no, well, you got to get disqualified. He was on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. My God, James, what are you? Well, so I don't give a shit. Get somebody's little life. I am 100% with you. I will argue with this with you. I have made this point before. I mean, I think broadening the life experience and the professional experience of the justices would do a world of good. And I would add to this that it would be really helpful to have people who have worked in politics, who actually understand how the elected branches function. You know, Sandra Day O'Connor was in the Arizona State Legislature. I think that was healthy and helped inform the court of what it's like to do that work. Um, Earl Warren, before he was a Supreme Court justice, he was the governor of California. That's a good idea to have people with those kinds of firsthand knowledge about how the other branches of government operate making these decisions. They are so powerful. And to have them all come from what, you know, you're right. It's this high-end legal background. They've all come from appellate court, judicial positions. That is really only part of the set of skills and experience that you need. And it's um, become a kind of prerequisite canceling out all these other kinds of experiences. And it would be really valuable if um, President Biden took that into account if he gets to make a Supreme Court appointment. You know, President Clinton, and it didn't work out, really wanted to appoint Mario Cuomo to the Supreme Court. I think that would have been a brilliant appointment. Just brilliant appointment. Yeah, I, You know, I, I think, you know, everybody, when people take the politics out of everything— to take all the humanity out, to take all the ability to see somebody with, with the life that somebody else leads. And when you just draw from the same pool of 1% of the people in the country, you, you, you're not going to get people that have any under, in, in all the law clerks are the same way. I, I, I mean, no, you're right. It just, it just, okay, well, I'm glad, I'm, I'm delighted that, that you and I are, have a, a, a mind meld we on should, We should pick the next person, or at least we should get to decide that that person is going to have some background that involves actually working in politics. Yeah. Look, I mean, these nine justices get to, yeah, right? They, these nine justices get to decide whether the work of the elected branches stands or not. At least a couple of them should know what it's like to actually try to get a law passed. Yeah. You know, and well, the classic, like, or run a the classic, I mean, Emily and James, um, Emily mentioned Earl Warren, that unanimous Brown v. Board decision. It was not only a former governor of California on that court, three former United States senators and two former attorneys general. I would suggest that that played a big role in that unanimous decision. I, I have my and recommendation. I don't, I don't think that uh, I don't think this court's capable. I, I, of that. I have my recommendation to the next Supreme Court justice. The president, I think, has appropriately said he wants to uh, appoint a black woman, 
And of course, everybody says, well, there's this black woman that's a, you know, teaches contracts at Harvard. Or there's a, a black woman at the university. Appoint Stacey Abrams. That's who you appoint. Some, this woman has led a life. There's, you know, brilliant piece of research by Theda Scopel at Harvard on how her political organizing was better than what they had in North Carolina. And Stacey Abrams would be a great Supreme Court justice. And because she knows the way that people live and she's recruited throughout, you know, rural Georgia. She understands compromise. She was a minority leader in the Georgia legislature. And God damn it, get somebody in there that, that's led a life and knows the life that other people need lead. That's my recommendation to, to the president. Been so away. Stacey Abrams is a beloved uh, classmate of mine. So I got to she a lawyer. <laughs> Yeah, well, she she went to law school. She, um, yeah, I I have only um, fond and good things to say about Stacy. Well, we'll start to move and put, put Stacy on the Supreme Court. <laughs> if I can get That's James Carville and Emily like Bazelon on that, I think, man, I mean, we got a, We got yeah. a hell of a start. Uh, Emily Bazelon, you have been a terrific guest. I I know how busy you are, but thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Right, thank Fun. you, Emily. Hey, James, 2021 is already in its final innings, and we may want to make sure you're ready for anything you might face next year by joining us and using Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into current events with titles like Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS by Joby Warwick and The Future of Capitalism by Paul Collier. They've blinked thousands of titles in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, and we hope you all do, they blink those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app, right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. James, this is something that's really, really fantastic. You know, a rule that I've lived by my entire life, and Blinkist has proved it wrong, and that is if something sounds too good to be true, don't fool with it. You know, so you got this guaranteed return on investment. You got this product. This is actually, uh, it's actually as good as you think it is. And that doesn't happen very often. And, you know, I'll be 77 in a little more than a month, and frankly, not very much more. And this is one of the rare times in my life where I said, oh, this, this can't be that good. It actually is. It actually is. It's, it, 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 it's an incredible product to have. Well, and right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash War Room to get 25% off at a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash War Room or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, now for one of our favorite segments, the questions, the really good questions we get and the answers that we try to provide. The first one is going to be a little bit different because it comes from Estes in North Carolina, and he has not only asked a great question, he's answered it. So let me just go through it. He says, can you comment on the latest setback 
for Biden. The mishandling of the contract for submarines that enraged our ally France and raises Jimmy Carter-like questions whether he's competent. How badly do these missteps hurt his chances for re-election? His answer, that may be the dumbest fucking question we've ever heard on this show. A misstep? Politically damaging? He just agreed that Australia would move $66 billion worth of jobs from France to America. Australia did this because America makes better submarines. Hell yes, France is mad. We're out competing them. This is supposed to be bad for Biden? Then was it handled badly? The French weren't told. Estes says the French were just told. Do you think the French would have been less mad if we told them last month? And anyway, it was up to Australia, the buyer, to tell France they had decided to buy from someone else. So bottom line, America got $66 billion worth of jobs, and the French respond by canceling a gala Saturday party at their Washington embassy. And the foreign policy establishment thinks that's a bad trade-off. Oh, yeah, we also stood up to the Chinese. Man, right on, Esther. Yeah, I wonder if that's the grandchild of Estes Kefauver. You know, I, I don't kind know, of the same part of the world, but, you know, it, it, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's something I was reading today, somebody said, well, France, if you, unless you count French Polynesia, doesn't have anything to do with the Pacific. <laughs> the United States has a lot to do with it. You know how many miles of coastline we have on the Pacific? Yeah. But it's just, it is the same repetitive thing over and over. The lobbyists are shaking the country down. Right? We're not getting prescription drug reform. We're not doing anything about a horribly unjust tax code. And the press is whining about, well, you know, because they go to, a lot of them go to Paris and they have friends over there. And, you know, we were really French not, embassy? Yeah, yeah, the French embassy. I mean, God almighty, somebody, they got to shake themselves out of their obsession with minutia and bullshit and start covering what's going on in the world. And, and, it, it it just it it is it makes a a very good point. By the way, I, I suspect if if Australia wanted to build nuclear plants, the French would be pretty good at it because they build a lot. They don't build nuclear submarines. We do. That, it, for for better or worse, we've kind of perfected that that little puppy, hadn't we? Well, Estes, I I tell you that's one of the great questions and one of the great answers we've ever gotten. We invite you to come back at us again, James. Yeah. The first of uh, the other questions is from Brenda in Linville, Tennessee. She okay, asks, how, how do I politely address the issue with my friends about blaming Biden about the crisis at the border? This problem has been around for decades. My ignorant Trump friends actually think it started yesterday. Well. First thing I'd say is, so wait, there's two things. You say under Biden, the country is a hellhole, right? Yet everybody's trying to get into it. So I would ask you a question. Would you rather live in a country that people were getting out, trying to get out of or a country that people were trying to get into? Of course, you know the obvious answer. And the answer is, of course, these same, the same people that are pissing and moaning about this are the same people that oppose foreign aid. So our laws are our laws. I understand. It's not, I'm, I'm so happy that I won some kind of a birth lottery that I was born here and not in Haiti. But we're going to have to return people, and we, we should make some kinds of investments, get these international groups and, and uh, all people like that. To The answer is we can't let all these people in the United States, but we can make certain investments to make Haiti a better place to live. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible problem. But if, if, if Joe Biden's America is so bad, why so many people want to come to it? Yeah. Well, you know, I wish they'd pass immigration reform, which they're not going to. That would have helped. Oh, shit, but, they ain't going to pass But gas. she is absolutely right that this is a problem that's been around for years. It looks awful. 
every time it happens. And uh, at some point, they will realize we have a broken system, uh, that uh, this, this economy cannot survive without immigrants. Just cannot. I mean, it's that simple. It it would, we, we'd go to a free fall, but it's a good you know, question. Nick you know, in San Antonio, Texas says, this is good, James. How do we get rid of Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, and Ken Paxton? We're surrounded by Trumpites. So what's a Texas Democrat going to do? I'm a native Texan, and I'm really embarrassed by the dictator-like behavior. Well, first of all, uh, Matthew Dowd, who was once a Democrat, then a Republican, and now a Democrat, I think put it very well talking about Abbott, Patrick, and Ken Paxton, who's under indictment. He says, one's, one's craven, one's cruel, and one's a crook. Uh, that, that's the three amigos uh, of the right-wing Trumpites in Texas. Encouraging bit of news, Beto O'Rourke is going to run for governor. Abbott's poll numbers are way down as he moves hard to the right on abortion and voting rights. Uh, we were premature in thinking Texas might go blue or at least purple in 2020. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you what you can do, Nick. Uh, get behind Beto and uh, the other people that run on that ticket. Yeah, and don't forget about the lieutenant governor. He's all-world asshole. I mean, he's not just by Texas standards. You know, he's the guy that said black people were causing the COVID uptake when the black vaccination rates are four times higher than white Republicans. But let's not forget him. And, and you're right. Beto is the answer. All right. We don't we don't need any primary. We don't need anything. This is the answer. We got to rally behind it. And you know what? I think we can win this thing. If, if this Congress, if they would do something it just is such a, a the, the, Ken Burns is right. We're in 1941, 1861 territory, and these goddamn people are acting like it's 1997 all over again. It's not. It's not. Stop it. Now. Somebody, is there, is there a single patriot left in this country? Honestly. Okay, let's hope that Texas is not like uh, Charlie Brown in the football. But um, uh, I agree. Better O'Rourke is a, you know, it's, it's great news that he's running. James, these, I'm going to combine these two questions. One is from Jim in Erie, and the other is from Eileen in Reston. <clears throat> Jim said, my wife and I were driving through rural Erie County. By the way, Erie County went for Biden last time and saw two yard signs we found alarming. One said Trump 2024, uh, the rules haven't changed. And the other said, fuck Biden, masks don't work, we the people. Those signs aren't pro-Trump. They aren't just pro-Trump. They're full of venom and, big, and vindictiveness. And Eileen in Reston says, <clears throat> who is obviously for Terry McAuliffe, says McAuliffe has very few signs up, <clears throat> even at polling sites. There's one McAuliffe sign for every several Yunkin signs. Is he focusing on other parts of the state? Does McAuliffe not have the funds? It feels like he's not trying here in Northern Virginia. Well, let, let's deal with Erie first. First thing is, is I've got a lot of friends in Erie. Uh, you know, they're, they're, I think they're the largest manufacturer of locomotives in the United States in Erie. And they also have, you know, everybody talks about Chicago hot dogs. You ought to try one of those Erie hot dogs. They're really good. I've spent a lot of time there. And like I say, got a lot of friends. And you, you're going to find, all, you know, there's an element in Erie County that is going to be highly pro-Trump, I, I would not get too discouraged by that. I mean, I would be discouraged, but just, just to start with, but I, I think that's just indicative of the way people are. In terms of our friend in Reston, let me assure you, Terry is running. And you're right, Youngkin has a very aggressive yard side thing. I, I, 
have a place in Northern Virginia where I am now, and I also have a place in Shenandoah County, which is very red, in, in the western part of the state. And Yunkin has invested a lot of money in science. Most political professionals, myself included, are, are not particular fans of passive advertising. And look, this is going to be a very difficult race. Uh, I think Terry's, you know, yes, he is raising money. You know, Yunkin has a, a personal fortune that is much larger than Terry's, and people are helping, but I, I would not get too, too concerned. I would be concerned, but there were other things that would concern me more than the yard sign uh, disparity here. What concerns me is that people in Virginia are looking at these Democrats in Washington who are doing nothing but squabbling and caving in to every goddamn special interest group they see and are not getting a thing done for the country. And that more than anything else, that more than anything else is going to hurt Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. So my advice to our friend in Reston is worry less about the yard signs, worry more about what's happening in Washington and what people are watching. I agree. If the Democrats have a, can point to significant accomplishments on November 2nd, Joe Biden's numbers are up a little bit, you know, hovering around 50 percent, bet on Terry McAuliffe. If that's not the case uh, and they haven't done anything and Biden's numbers are down in the mid to low 40s, uh, I think it's going to be very hard for Terry McAuliffe. So a lot depends on external events. You know, Simon in Cincinnati, Ohio, says, when's someone going to level with President Biden and tell him the reason he's president is he's not Sanders or Warren and, most importantly, not Trump? He needs to accept reality, and his age means he'll be a one-term president, and he needs to make his presidency about saving democracy, not about passing the $3.5 trillion bill through reconciliation. Simon, you are wrong. Of course he's president because he's not Trump and he's not Sanders, but that's been true of every president. They're not their opponent and other things. And Joe Biden had a little bit of luck, but boy, he got there and he sensed the electorate and, and you got to give him credit for that. And I'll tell you something, if you want to save democracy, you've got to get things done. And it, it's not a $3.5 trillion bill. That's a, that's a myth. It's actually smaller than that. It'll be smaller if they enact anything. But if you go and you leave this year and there's nothing accomplished then democracy is going to be in even rougher shape than it is right now. Correct. And, and what, what people will say, and at one point, who can blame them? What is democracy doing for me? We have a huge wealth inequality in the United States, and the wealthy people just buy off the, the government and buy off, you know, 12% of the Democratic Party. We, of course they're going to say that. We'll pay more for prescription drugs than any people in the entire world. And what do they do? They protect that. So maybe we ought to, we ought to try something else. Where, where is it? In, and that's how you weaken democracy. That, that's why Ken Burns, who, you know, I, 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 like, I, I think anybody would loves Ken Burns' film, this Muhammad Ali thing. I watched some of it. I'm just waiting so I can watch it on my computer. I think he knows, a little, I think he's kind of familiar with the history of the United States. I would just stipulate that up front. He said, well, this country is, is a, at a very dangerous point in this history, like during the Civil War, World War II, and people are not fucking acting like it. And it, it just makes me so, I am so worried, I am so angry, I am so concerned that somebody's sense of patriotism and I mean, what is wrong with these people? And and I'm sorry, the Republican Party is stone-ass crazy. 75% still think Trump won the election. 
The other 25% have no agenda beyond protecting power and wealth and, and corporate autocracy at, at, at every turn, including six members of the Supreme Court. Now, I'll tell our listeners this. We're in trouble. Let's everybody start acting like it. Okay, our last question, James, is from Greg uh, in Washington, D.C. I don't think we've taken a question before from right. Washington, D.C. No, you know, I know that Greg, place. Greg, this is a good one. Uh, maybe your neighbors. Many people are blaming Joe Manchin for limiting the Biden agenda, but Manchin representing West Virginia as a Democrat is a small miracle to begin with. Shouldn't a lot of the blame go to ticket splitters like the Biden-Collins voters in Maine? Why aren't more people talking about this? And I would add also to the disgraceful performance of Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. Well, what happens is, is that, and I've written about this and discussed it extensively, it's this idiot, woke language, defund the police, Latinx, coastal elite, college bullshit, cost us 20, and, you know, and, just to be frank, a, a lot of the sort of squads, sort of attitude, a lot of people went in and says, oh, I can't stomach Trump, but I'm going to vote for Republican Congress because I can't stomach the disconnect between the, the woke and the rest of the country. So they cost us Senate seats. I, you don't know we could have, what we could have done in Maine or what we could have done. Maybe we could have done better in Iowa. Maybe we could have done better, in, you know, certainly in North Carolina. But, and I know they, I am, convinced to the nth degree that they cost us a good 15 house seats, which, you know, now we got, so these people caused Nancy Pelosi to have a four point, a four member majority in, a, you know, and then they piss and moan. Well, you're the reason we have it. So, we, and somebody has got to, and, and, and this applies to, to Congressman uh, Cortez or Senator Manchin or anybody else, somebody's got to step in and say, I'm concerned about the United States. All right. I'm, I'm more concerned about that than I am every part of what I think and believe. And, and if we don't get that, it's going to be a very ugly ending. I agree. Okay, James, now for the outrage, our outrage of the week. You know, I'm a fervent advocate of reforming our broken immigration system. George W. Bush is very good on the issue made a big mistake in 2005 by prioritizing Social Security instead. Obama didn't push hard enough, and Trump was just a bad bigot. But the attacks from immigration advocates against the Senate parliamentarian for ruling that an immigration bill doesn't meet the rules for the reconciliation measure, this stuff can be arcane, I know that. But this wasn't a policy or ideological stance. Elizabeth McDonough, who is the parliamentarian, she was appointed by Harry Reid. She served under Republican and Democratic majorities, was simply following the way she saw the rules. The Senate could change those rules if they want to. The non-political Senate parliamentarian's rulings haven't been overturned in more than 40 years. And it's a cheap shot now for the left to criticize McDonough. I, my outrage is this, is that... It, it, this whole infrastructure question, I'll I, I tell you something that happened. You know, of course, for me, what this happened in New Orleans. In 2005, you remember federal levies collapsed because they were, frankly, they were shittily made. That's just what happened. So we give Bush credit, give, you know, give the Congress credit. They said, all right, we're going to build, a, we're going to spend $14 billion building a, a, a much improved levy system in New Orleans. 
we had the nightmare storm. We were on the, the, the right side of a, of a strong Category 4, and we had no flooding. And that was $14 billion. If we wouldn't have, the, 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 the price tag for Katrina today would have been $200 billion. When, when you're looking at this in real time, by the way, more people have died in New York City than died in New Orleans as a result of Hurricane Ida. And you watch, and I'm just so stuck on this, and you watch the pettiness, and you watch the lobbying, and you watch all of the stuff, it makes you ill. It makes you someone that, does anybody here care about this goddamn country? And I, I'm just stuck on this issue. Well, stay totally stuck, stuck on it on because, because it happens that you're right on this. Yeah. Okay. Fourteen billion uh, saves you two hundred billion. That's a pretty good investment. That's good ROI. I bet you Bob Rubin couldn't get that. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions to us by email to Politics War Room at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we really would appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Blinkist. They're in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 